Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled, that is, unwashed. For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands properly, holding to the tradition of the elders. And when they come from the marketplace, they do not eat unless they wash. And there were many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites as it is written? This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. And he said to them, you have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. For Moses said, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, whatever you should have gained from me is korban, that is, given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, and many such things you do. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a man are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said to them, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. We have been working together as a community through the Gospel of Mark. Um, it's been uh, exciting. I've really enjoyed preparing for it, just listening again afresh to uh, what Jesus has said and done. Um, and um, sometimes we can be maybe over familiar with some of the things that we think we know. And yet when we come back afresh, um, we learn new things and it challenges us on deeper levels. And I love that. Um, and so we're, we're picking this up in this pretty important passage, actually, in, in Mark chapter 7. And, and really, the subject is all about religion. We hear a lot about religion particularly here in Northern Ireland, and uh, you know, the, the good bits and the bad bits and all the weird bits in between. And, and so Jesus has something to say about religion. 
In fact, we'll, we'll think of this passage together under these three headings. Firstly, we'll, we'll look at the deadliness of religion, number one. Number two, we'll look at the heart of religion. And number three, we'll look at the beauty of religion. So the deadliness, the heart, and the beauty. First of all, what is the, the deadliness of religion? Well, we've got here um, a, a, an episode or two, I suppose, when Jesus clashes with uh, the religious authorities of his day, the religious leaders. And, and we've seen this over, over the uh, work we've done reading together. Uh, Mark already um, in our series, he, he clashes time and again. And um, a, f- a few months ago, we saw that Jesus describes this as two systems clashing, two sort of uh, um, fundamentally opposed systems. He describes them as the new wine of the kingdom of God and the old wineskins of the old religion. And he says that the two aren't compatible. You can't put the new wine into the old wineskins. The two just don't, don't mix. You need new wineskins for the new wine. And so that's the sort of the, the framework, I suppose, for what's going on here, a clash of these two systems of, of religion, so to speak. And the occasion for this episode was the marketplace. Um, at the end of the last chapter in, in Mark 7, Jesus um, ha- has been healing. It says many places in the market, uh, sorry, many people in the marketplaces, you know, the gatherings um, in the center of little towns and villages uh, where people would have exchanged um, uh, their, their food and, and various bits and pieces. And it's the place where, the, you know, the center, I suppose, of the community. And, and so that sort of stimulated, I suppose, then the, the Pharisees, it says there, and some of the scribes, they are the scholars of the, the Jewish faith tradition, uh, to c- come down from Jerusalem, head office. Jesus is, is ministering in the, the northern aspects of, of, of Palestine at the time, Eric or Galilee. And, um, uh, you know, the, the religious leaders look at Jesus. They look at his practices, how he'd just been out in the marketplaces, healing all these people, mixing with them, all sorts of things. And they say to him in verse 1, why are your disciples not washing their hands, washing themselves according to the tradition of the elders? Why are they not ceremonially cleaning themselves after they've come from the marketplace and before they eat? What's, what's with that, say the Pharisees? And of course, as, as we see with these, these Pharisees and these, these leaders, um, they're, they're not really asking an open question. They don't really want to know. They're trying to catch Jesus out. They're trying to show that he's a fake, a phony, um, someone to be worried about, a heretic. Why are your disciples not washing uh, according to the tradition of the elders? And, and, and Mark explains a little more about what he means for, for those of us who are not from a, a contemporary Jewish background. He, he says that, that uh, um, you know, people will not eat um, until they have fully washed themselves, not just their hands, but also um, the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels, it says there in verse 4, and even the, the seats that they sit on, they, they, they wash them as well. And, and so they go to Jesus and his disciples and say, why, why are you guys not doing this? What, don't, don't, you, don't you care about the law? See, this, this, this idea springs from what is described here as the tradition of the elders. What is the tradition of the elders that's in mind here? Well, well the tradition of the elders was, a, was a, I suppose, a catch-all term for a vast array of, of practical rules and requirements that have been developed by uh, the elders, you know, the, the, um, the rabbis, I suppose, of, of, of the people of Israel over generation upon generation. And as time went on, um, they got bigger and bigger and more developed traditions, how to keep clean, how to, how to keep holy, 
how to avoid becoming ceremonially unclean, how to avoid becoming defiled. Because, you know, in, in the marketplace, there are, there are people and animals and things that if you touch them, according to the tradition of the elders, you become unclean, right? God is not happy with you if you're unclean. If you touch them, uh, you become unclean. I guess we're kind of a bit more aware of this in our own day, particularly in, in, in the times that we live in at the moment uh, regarding uh, the COVID pandemic. And we're more aware than ever about things like social distancing, um, about wearing masks, about keeping, keeping apart, of avoiding big crowds. Uh, you know, if you're going around Tesco's and there's a lot of people all wanting to buy milk at the same time, that happens to me all, all the time. It's like a whole shop all want to buy milk. Can we just spread out people? So I, I go off and, you know, to try and avoid the crowds and come back when there's less people who want to buy milk and then off we go again. And maybe you've done something similar uh, yourself when you've been going around. But ra- rather, than, rather than public health, uh, the, the Pharisees here are concerned with religious health. Health. Um, you know, rather than social distancing, they're more worried about spiritual distancing. If you keep away from, from unclean things, you can remain clean yourself. That, that's the general gist of it. But note, none of any of this stuff that we've just read in, in Mark 7 is written down in the Old Testament law, in the, in the Torah. None of it's written down at all. This is all stuff that's been constructed around that law and has formed this massive tradition that is passed on generation to generation to generation. And as the Pharisees show us, In this case, they are more concerned with their tradition than they are with the word of God. And Jesus responds very sharply in verse 6. He calls them hypocrites. You hypocrites. He refers to one of the great Old Testament prophets called Isaiah. And he said, look, Isaiah saw this years ago. He said, you people honor me, this is God speaking through the prophet, you people honor me with your lips, but your heart is far from me. You know, and Jesus is saying here, you Pharisees are worried about the ceremonial cleaning and washing. It looks good, it sounds good, you say the right things, and yet your heart is far from me. Your heart is far from God. It's a million miles away. In fact, your heart is pretty much dead as far as God is concerned. Your worship is dead. He has even stronger criticism in verses 8 and 9. Look at that. He says, you leave the commandments of God and hold to the traditions of men. Right? They're clinging on to the stuff that they've created themselves. Leaving behind the commandments of God. He goes on, you reject the commandment of God and you establish, that is, you set up your own tradition. This system that you're trying to impose on us, said Jesus, it it is poison. It's deadly. You're just paying lip service. You appear to be holy, pious, but actually you're a bunch of hypocrites, says Jesus. This term hypocrite um, was in use way before, before Jesus came along. It was, it was um, uh, used of the uh, actors within ancient sort of Greek um, entertainment, I suppose, and it referred to the masks that the actors would have used on the stage. They would have removed a mask and put another mask on in order to convey a different character. That's where the word hypocrite comes from, referring to those masks. That's what you are, says Jesus. You've got a mask of holiness, but underneath you're a fake. Your tradition is more important to you than the word of God. It is over the word of God. And your dead religion, says Jesus, it will lead to a dead heart. 
Then he gives an example of exactly what he means in verses 19 through 13. How corrupt their traditions have become because they're being used to undermine God's commandments. He says to them, look, you you know the law. Uh, You know the commandments. For example, honor your mother and your father. Respect them. But, But yet you, with your complex series of traditions, are able to take what you should be giving to your parents in their older age to support them and love them and give back everything they've sort of given to you. You take that stuff that should, should be given to theirs, and instead of being obedient to God's word, you, you keep that stuff for yourself, and you say, well, look, I'm going to use that as an offering to God. I'm going to give that to God one day. And thereby you get out of obeying the word of God by honoring your mother and father. That's called Corban, if you're following along in your Bible, verse 11. That's what they mean. It's like a pledge. I'm pledging this stuff to God, therefore I don't have to honor and love my parents in that way. It sounds pious, doesn't it, to give this to God? Sounds, sounds holy. But it's not what God says. And see, they, they avoid obeying God by sticking to the tradition, and that is just so messed up. I mean, how have they got so far that they stick to their tradition and end up going against what God has clearly written? Let's just maybe take a step back for a moment and, and, and give, give them some credit, perhaps. Um, the tradition of the elders probably started with good intentions. Um, they, they, they sought to honor uh, the written word of God. They sought to uphold it. They sought to, to express the how. God says that, this is what must happen. And the tradition of the elders was how that might work in real life, in practical application. And, and that was especially clear um, when, when um, the people of Israel who were in uh, exile in Babylon, when they returned to their, sort of their homeland, I suppose you could say, they, they were at that time the minority group. And so the distinction between who was a, a Jew and who was a non-Jew, otherwise known as a Gentile, uh, was, was really sharp, really clear. And so scholars show that it was during this period when, when they came back, they had to be really clear on who was in and who was out, that these, this tradition of the elders really uh, rose up. But the error here that Jesus identifies is that their tradition effectively became another law. Um, it was more influential on the lives of everyday Jews than God's commandments. And this is even one of the Ten Commandments, right? This is one of the big ones. They're even able to undermine the Ten Commandments through their tradition. And let's be fair, from, from a religious perspective, um, it's pretty much easy, isn't it, to, to tick a box. It's easy to monitor your progress. I've washed myself, therefore I am clean. That, that's kind of easy to do. Um, you know you're getting on well when you can do these following things. And it's even more easy to compare yourself to others less religious than you because you've ticked that box, you've done that washing. Why do your elders not do that? You know, why do your disciples not do that? But you can see this tradition, when it, when it grows too big, it, it breeds arrogance, um, pride, division, the haves and the have-nots, those who are in and those who are not, because a dead religion leads to a dead heart. It's a good job we have no problem with religious traditions here in Northern Ireland, isn't it? None of this is relevant for us at all, of course. Of course, we understand here, don't we, that... that the trouble, I suppose, with religious 
traditions. When, when our traditions sort of overcome and become a bigger influence on our society than the Word of God itself, it's a mess. You know, when, when our place or our cultural identity, or the country that we are from is more impactful to us in our community than God himself, and the promises he gives us in scripture, the peace that he will bring, the unity that he will bring, when we prioritize those other things instead of God, then there's trouble. And, and this is true, of course, in broader society here in Northern Ireland, but of course, even within the, the church, particularly, I suppose I'm referring to the evangelical church, we have traditions as well. We have traditions. Every church has a tradition of some form or other. Those who have an established and historical denomination they are part of, those who say we're not part of any denomination, we have no tradition, everybody has a tradition. Even those who reject tradition have tradition. In our theology, for example, in our practices and how we do the Christian faith and how we do our gatherings, etc., there's traditions through all of that. And therefore, all of us are susceptible to, to placing our traditions above God and his word. It's something that we can all fall into. And this is, by the way, this is how a deadly religion develops, just so you know. What happens is we take a principle or a concept that we see in scripture, in the Bible, and then, and then with that, we, 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 we sort of give a very specific irreversible, unassailable application that everybody must cling to, everybody must follow. And we make a law about the law. And that puts us on the road to deadliness of religion. And when we have dead religion, we have dead hearts. That's the ultimate end that Jesus points to here. If you hear people, with, particularly within the church, say, well, that's just not how we do it here then you know you've started on that journey. When tradition becomes indistinguishable from God's word, then you know you have a problem. Typically, and I suppose historically, over the last few generations, examples of this include how we must dress when it comes to church, the social habits that we must adopt outside of the church, the language that we speak both within and without the church, Spiritual disciplines we must embrace. When these become more important than God and his word, then we start to wander towards a dead religion. But before we move on and before you uh, maybe react or something, I think it's important to say that the tradition itself is not bad. Tradition is not bad at all. Um, if by tradition we mean being historically and theologically astute and wise, then it's a good thing. Uh, when, when we listen humbly to voices from the past and, and, and how uh, the church of the last 2,000 years has, has grappled with ideas and theologies and, and situations, then we can learn a lot. We can be in a much better position, much stronger as a church in the 21st century. It prevents narrow-mindedness and ignorance if we listen to who have gone before us. And by God's grace, we can avoid some of the mistakes that the church has made in the past by being open to tradition. And, and, and when you do uh, pay attention to who's gone before us in, in the last 2,000 years, we realize the church has grappled and answered many of the issues that we're facing today as, as a church. For example, our theology. Uh, 
our understanding of God as Trinity, three in one and one in three, our understanding of Jesus and, and who he is and our understanding of salvation. All of these things have been shaped and handed down by faithful people um, in, in many generations before us. Some tradition is good. Creeds and catechisms and, and confessions of faith are all good. So, so the answer then is not to, to purge it all out from the church and, and throw it all out. Uh, the answer is not to, to try and reinvent the wheel every time we start a new church because we just end up doing a bad job. And we, we cause ourselves a lot of heartache in, in the process. But what we are to reject, and what Jesus, I, I think to use a different term, is, is rejecting here, is not tradition itself, but it's traditionalism. Traditionalism. This, this blind obedience to traditions, confusing them with God's word. That's what we're to reject. And we're to reject this deadliness of religion. How do you know whether you have started to wander on that pathway of dead religion? Well, for example, if it's more important to you that you are a Presbyterian than a follower of Jesus, then you're on that journey. Or if it's more important to you that you're a Baptist than you are a follower of Jesus, then you're on that journey. If it's more important to you that you're a charismatic then is that you're a follower of Jesus, then you're on that journey. If, the, if, if, if it's more important to you that you're British, uh, uh, more than a follower of Jesus, then you're on that journey. If it's more important to you that you're Irish, for example, if it's more important to you that you have the right theology than, than, than having God himself, then you're on that journey. If it's more important to you that you, you, you live a good life and you haven't done any hurt to anybody, if that's more important than God, then you're on the road to deadness of religion. These things are good in and of themselves. They're important. But if they're more important to you and more influential in your daily life than Jesus and everything that he said and done for you as presented to us in the scripture, then you're on your way towards a dead religion. Deadliness of religion. So if it's not stuff we do, then, then what is it all about? What does Jesus teach us then is therefore the essence, the heart of religion. Second point, the heart of religion. So um, as we've already mentioned, there are some sort of good things about the, the dead religion that we see here. Uh, I, I, you know, inverted commas, good. Um, because it's achievable. Right? We can say we've done it, completed it. Tick that box, I've washed my hands, now I'm clean in the sight of God. And we can understand how attractive that can be for many people, for us included. But Jesus, in this next section from verses 14 through 23, just delivers this hammer blow against that way of thinking. Um, he explodes this notion of, of, of deadly religion. He says in verse 15, for example, uh, nothing uh, from outside of a person can make them defiled, only that which comes from the inside. You know, it's not the external things that we do and, and our washing and our avoidance of certain... That's not what makes you defiled in the eyes of God, says Jesus. It's what's going on inside. It's not your practices or your rituals. It's your heart. Verse 19, he says, look, for example, take food and ceremonial food and what's clean and what's unclean. Uh, you know, food just goes in. You eat it, you chew it, it goes in and eventually it comes out again. It doesn't actually affect the inner person, says Jesus. It doesn't, doesn't, doesn't alter your relationship with God. 
doesn't, doesn't, doesn't make you clean or unclean. Because it says in verse 21, it's what's in your heart that makes you clean or unclean, good or evil. Verses 21 to 22. Uh, for from within, from out of the heart of, of man, mankind, you know, men and women, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, which just to be clear in sort of biblical terms is any sort of sexual activity outside of covenantal marriage. Theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. This is just a, you know, a few bullet points. The list may go on. All these things, says Jesus, are evil and they come from within. And that's what defiles a person. That's what makes you unclean in the sight of God. You can, you can wash all you like. You can go and do as many religious practices and go through the motions and turn up to all the services that you want, but it won't help, says Jesus. Deadly religion means that you can control it, right? You can, you can do it, you can tick the box. But deadly religion is deadly because it's purely external. You can make a show of things and even impress other people in your church. You can say, look, to make myself right, to make myself holy, I'm just going to perform some more practices. I'm going to go to church. I'm going to give a bit more money. I'm going to do some good works. But if you think like that, folks, Jesus has some bad news for you. Because it's your heart that's messed up. It's not your practices. Okay, it's not your eating habits. It's your heart. And the bad news is that you and I can do nothing to change a messed up heart. There's nothing you can do. So you can see how attractive dead religion is because it gives you something to do. According to Jesus, there's nothing you can do. In our context, I suppose today, we could say that dead religion comes in all forms, both within the Christian tradition and, and, and the other sort of historic world religions, but even the new spiritualities, anything sort of embraces you know, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, and all that stuff, whatever health benefits these things may have, they perform, I guess, a religious function, and they won't ultimately work on your heart in the eyes of God. We don't like to hear this, do we? I don't like to hear this, that our heart is bad and there's nothing we can do. Um, it's not nice. But I suppose on one level, maybe a more profound level, it chimes with something that perhaps we intuitively know is, is true. Because for all the practices, all the dead religion, all the traditions, all the spirituality, we know that they don't ultimately hit the spot. Um, they will always leave us hungry. Right? Just don't go deep enough. Can't wash enough to be truly clean in the eyes of God. And the bottom line is, according to Jesus, that our relationship with God cannot be fixed by external actions, whatever they may be. Actually, our relationship with God is not messed up by external actions. Um, ultimately, it's a problem that's far more profound, far more... Um, central to who you are. Jesus shows us that the, the fundamental issue is the level of the heart. It's your innermost part. You know, the deepest part of you is what makes you, you. So what is the answer then? If we're, if we're so, uh, I guess, irreparably 
messed up, damaged, defiled, dirty, whatever, in our hearts, in the very core of our being, then what can we do? What's the answer? Well, um, thanks be to God, it's not a new question that's been asked today. In fact, the people of, of God in the Old Testament, the people of Israel, they made the same mistakes again and again. Uh, as we do. So you can go back and read and, and see what God said to their mistakes. Um, they, they, the people of Israel, time and time again, they put their faith in religion, not in God. They, they, they majored on external practices whilst their innermost being was, was, was rejecting God. So they've been through the motions. They knew all about it. And God repeatedly challenged their misunderstanding. And he taught them um, how to reject this deadly religion. And so we do well to listen to what he said to the people of old and think about then what he might be saying to us. He said to them, your hearts are messed up. You can't know and enjoy me. You're too corrupt. You're too sinful. But then in this classic passage, I think I've got it. from one of the great prophets of the Old Testament in Ezekiel 36. God speaks to this issue of what to do with a heart we can't fix. And he says to his people, don't forget this is, a, this is a lover, right? This is a lover speaking to someone who's walked away from him. He's saying to his people, I will sprinkle you with clean water and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit in you and cause you to walk in my statutes, that is my commandments, and be careful to obey my rules. See, the answer to the problem of the human heart is not new patterns, new traditions, new practices. The answer, as God clearly states here in Ezekiel 36, is a new heart. It is a clean heart. But who does this? Who brings this? Isn't it obvious? It's God. He says, I will sprinkle you. I will cleanse you. I will give you a new heart. I'll put it within you. I'll remove the heart of stone. And I'll give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit in you. It's me. I, I, I. This is what I do to you because I love you. And then imagine the excitement at the beginning of Mark's gospel that we read and studied together some months ago. When, when, when the forerunner of Jesus, a man called John the Baptist, spoke of Jesus and prepared people's hearts for Jesus to come. And he said, look, one day, someone who is far mightier than I is going to come. John said, I've been baptizing you with water. But he's going to come and he's going to baptize you. He's going to wash you with the Holy Spirit. Mark 1, verse 8. And in Jesus, God came to do just that. He came to do Ezekiel 36 for you. When Jesus, in his mission, he came to bring the kingdom through his life, through his death on the cross, through his resurrection on the third day, through his ascension to the right hand of the Father. Then he poured out the Holy Spirit upon the church. Right, Acts chapter 2. He made it possible, Jesus made it possible, for you to have a new heart, to be thoroughly cleansed in the eyes of God, 
spotless, every speck gone, every uh, fruitless deed you've been freed from, your pointless attempts to follow dead religion, no longer needed, a new heart is yours, a new life is yours, you're loved and accepted by God the Father. The old life is gone with its dead religion and the guilt of constantly messing up. It's gone. This is the gospel. Amen. This is the good news. And Jesus came to show that it's here, it is now, and it's for you. So God has come in Jesus to fix your heart. And not just to fix it up and patch it together with a bit of sellotape, but to give you a brand new, beautiful, clean, pure heart. So the question that we're going to look, to, look at together as we, as we come to our third point then is how do we get it? How do we get that heart? Well, that brings us to the beauty of religion. The beauty of religion. Um, not all tradition is bad, not all religion is bad. Certainly within the Christian sense of the term. There's a beauty here that we'll discover. Jesus says in verse 24, uh, moved out. You know, it's getting hostile. These, these religious leaders after him trying to bring him down. Jesus moves out to a, a non-Jewish region, a Gentile region. And, and possibly one of the reasons he did that is to expand his mission, to, to, to bring the kingdom elsewhere. Possibly he just wanted a bit of downtime with his disciples, some, you know, just to bring the heat out of the situation. We don't know. But there he was, and it says there he went to the region, sort of a Tyre and Sidon, which is modern-day Lebanon up the coast a little bit, north of Israel. And there he was in a house, and he was trying to lay low, it says. Uh, he didn't want anyone to know, and yet he could not be hidden. And it says immediately in verse 25, a woman whose daughter, it says, was oppressed by a demon, heard that he was there, heard all about Jesus. It says she burst in, she fell at his feet, she begged for help and said, give me grace or I die. We've seen similar encounters before, I guess, where people have come and thrown themselves at the feet of Jesus, be it Jairus, the synagogue leader, or the woman who was healed from a bleeding disorder, or the man who was, who was oppressed by hundreds of demons. Came and fell at Jesus' feet, but there's something different about this woman that Mark spells out for us in verse 26. In fact, it's basically a list. He says, she's a woman, which in that context certainly um, puts you at a disadvantage in that society already. She's not only a woman, she's a, a Gentile, a non-Jew. She's a Syrophoenician. Of all the types of non-Jews you could be, a Syrophoenician uh, from that uh, neighborhood, uh, they were well-renowned for their pagan religion, for their zeal for their paganism. Okay, so not just a Gentile, but a Syrophoenician Gentile. And she had a daughter, it says, who had an unclean spirit. Okay, Mark underscores this idea, unclean spirits. So that unclean spirit makes not only the daughter herself unclean, but it would make the mother herself unclean. Uh, presuming they live together in the same house. So this woman, we don't have her name, she is about as far removed on one level uh, from the situation we find at the beginning of the chapter. You know, these religious elites who come from Jerusalem, she's about as far removed from them as you can get. In religious terms, they are incredibly close to God, they could say. She was incredibly far away in religious terms. 
And yet, as we've already seen, they, the the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they were so near and yet so far. And so we can say this woman here is so far and yet so near to Jesus. And yet Jesus addresses her in a slightly uh, surprising manner. We're not used to hearing Jesus say perhaps things like this. Verse 27, when she came in and fell down and said, help me. He replied slightly strangely and said, look, it's important for the children to be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread and feed it to the dogs. Slightly offensive. Certainly because Jews would have referred to non-Jews or Gentiles as dogs, right? Unclean animals sniffing around the garbage, they're dogs. Is that what Jesus was intending to say to this poor woman? Well, not so. Perhaps um, slightly hidden from our eyes because we're reading in the the English translation of the original Greek text, but the, the, the word dog that Jesus uses here is not the word that would have referred to the, the, you know, the, the wild animal that sniveled around and, and, and um, you know, sniffled all the, the rubbish on the street. Uh, that's a different word. The word that he used here was the sort of word you would use to describe your household pet, um, your dog at home. And I guess by extension then, part of the family. We're not a dog family, we're a cat family with a cat called Mabel. Um, Occasionally, Mabel uh, gets some of the food that we eat, but we don't put a chicken into the oven and roast it for two and a half hours and prepare the, the meat and the, you know, the stuffing and all the rest of it and then leave it before the cat to come and eat and then we'll take what's left over. That's not how it works. You know that. Um, it's the other way around, right? We, we sit down, we eat, we enjoy that food as a family and then she, if she's lucky, she might get a few bits of uh, chicken chucked in her direction. She's part of the family, but she's, she's, you know, she's our cat. And so it's in that sort of context, I suppose, that Jesus is using this word dog, household pet, part of the family, but not the family. How would she respond then, this woman, this desperate woman at the end of her tether? Well, in verse 28, it tells us, she kind of gets it, I think. Verse 28, she says, yes, you're right, Lord. But even the crumbs that fall from the children's table are enough for us. Slightly odd. Jesus here, you see, is, is, is testing her faith. He's probing. You know, he's, he's maybe digging to see if there's faith in her. And the woman effectively is saying, look, I, I know my situation. I know my position before, before you and before the religion of Israel. I get that. She says, but I know who you are, Jesus. I know that you're loving. I've heard the stories about you. Um, I know that you're gracious from what they tell me, and I believe that to be true. I'm trusting that is true. I know that you, you, you fed 5,000 people recently, and there was 12 baskets left over. I know that there's stuff left over for the rest of us. You're, you're abundant in your provision. I get that. Surely there's some leftovers for us too. So Jesus says to her in verse 29, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. Jesus said, you've nailed it. You got it. She gets it. He says, probably looking to his disciples, did you hear that? She understands faith. She has faith. 
Your daughter will be well. The unclean spirit is gone. She is freed. She is cleansed. The stain from your family is gone. See the beauty of religion. The the religious elites that we encountered at the start of the story, they looked so near, so near. And yet they were dead. They were far away. They had learning. They had their theology straight. They had their respect of society. Many would look at them and think they are the models of religion. The the, the Pharisees and the scribes were of the people of the Jews in general. They had the word of God. The Messiah was to come from their people. They were so close to God on that religious level. She had none of that. She she had no religious precision. She had no respect from society, no in-depth knowledge of the Bible. She wasn't even a Jew. She had no chances on paper. And she knew it judging by her response. And yet the way that she approached Jesus could not be more different. She heard about him. She believed what she heard was true. And she ran and fell before him. In other words, she came humbly. Unlike the Pharisees that wanted to catch him out, she came with her heart and her hands open. She went away blessed. She went away clean. The stain was gone. It's so beautiful because it shows us today who can come and receive a new heart, a clean heart, one that's been sprinkled clean, one that's been washed by the Spirit. It's not the elites of our religion. It's not the religious types, whoever they may be, or the theological experts. It is the ones who realize that they cannot clean their own hearts up. They cannot replace their own hearts. Only God can do that. And he has done that already through sending his son, Jesus Christ. So the, so the one who comes to receive the new heart from Jesus is, is the one who comes humbly with open hands. Not because you've done well, not because you've obeyed the rules, not because of the tradition of the elders that you've lived out perfectly, but on the basis of Jesus. That's how you receive cleansing. It's called faith. And so this applies to us too, as we turn the light to look at ourselves. We, we cannot rely on our traditions or religious works or whatever it is that you're doing. Our hope is in Jesus and Jesus alone. It's what he's done for us. And so, so maybe you're sitting here listening to this stuff here and, and, and there's something within you that is this craving, this kind of cleansing, um, it's cleansing in the deepest part of you. Maybe you want to be washed clean like this woman here. Maybe, maybe you earnestly desire this new heart and maybe you've expended extraordinary amounts of energy trying to do the religious thing to obtain it and you have failed and you're hungry and you're burned out. But did you know that because of faith in Jesus... You can pray Psalm 51 that we we used earlier. Create me a new heart. 
Renew a right spirit within me. Because of Jesus, we can actually pray that and actually receive it. He will give it to you. If, like the woman, you come with nothing, you fall at his feet, you will leave with everything. It's beautiful. And when you do that, when you earnestly come before Jesus and he cleans you from the middle of your very being outwards, all of your behaviors and all of your attitudes that came from your corrupt old heart will change. All these things we read in verse 21, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, all that stuff will change when your heart is cleaned. It will cease. Maybe not overnight. For most of us, it's a progressive thing, but it's an obvious thing. When Jesus does this amazing thing upon you, giving you a new heart, you will start to display the reality of that in your day-to-day practice in your life. So it doesn't matter if you're an insider like they were or an outsider like she was. It doesn't matter if you're a religious person or not a religious person. If you come from a church background or you haven't come from a church background, the offer is there. The new, purified heart. That restored relationship with God is for you. Come to Jesus. Trust him. And he will clean your heart. Let's pray.